Hello, everybody. Welcome to I Speak Dead People. But before we begin, let's talk some sponsors. It's summertime. You know it. I know it. I'm excited. That means parties, weddings, events, fish fries, for God's sakes. And if you don't have anyone to DJ your event, then look no further than Starstruck Entertainment. Kyle Hopkins and his team at Starstruck are just what you need to get the party going. I'm telling you, he brings a whole trailer and he brings speakers, microphones, lights. It's his whole setup. You don't have to do anything. Let's be real here. A DJ can make or break the party. So leave it up to the professionals. And that is Kyle Hopkins and his team at Starstruck Entertainment, who is willing to travel throughout Montana and the whole Northwest. Be sure to check out starstruckent.net or call at 406-949-4320 to book your 2021 or 2022 event. How about clothes? Everybody likes clothes. We all wear clothes. And clothing stores are a dime a dozen these days. A quick internet search sends you to hundreds of different links. Just last month, I spent like a couple hundred bucks at an online retailer, and you should have seen what came in the mail. I had to fight the people with my bank and get my money back. It sucked. Live and learn, I guess, but... I'm going to stick to what I know, and that's Thistle and Thread Boutique. What sets Thistle and Thread Boutique apart from all the others? Well, they're Montana-owned and operated by two women entrepreneurs, and they understand style and trends, so their clothes are always rotating. The owners of Thistle and Thread Boutique fulfill their mission of supplying both men and women with clothes and accessories to help people feel their best. They honestly care. They ship nationwide with free shipping over $50, and with my promo code ISDP, you will receive 10% off at checkout. Don't get caught up in the mess of online retailers or scams like I did. Just look and feel your best while supporting a Montana business, and that's thistleandthreadboutique.com. Look in the episode description for links to these two sponsors. And now let's get on to the show. I've ever given a shout out to this jam, this song, but this is Clark Mormon, and he is from my hometown. I grew up with him, and it's a totally awesome song. And if you haven't already, you should check it out on Spotify. It's called She's At It Again by Clark Mormon. Check him out. He's on YouTube, Spotify, Instagram, all the above, and so am I. Check out I Speak Dead People podcast on Facebook and Instagram. But hello. You're here. I'm happy you're here. This is Sarah Bolstead. Welcome. And just like that, it's summertime. Like, what the heck? And we got to get out there before this Montana summer is over. It's almost July. I thought we were just getting into the swing of things, but I know I'm fully enjoying it. I've also noticed that some of the podcasts that I listen to are kind of dying out. Everyone's taking their little summer break. So I hope I'm able to provide you with some listening material for all your favorite little summer activities. Well, here we go. This is an episode that I do with someone named Courtney who I had just met. And after we did our episode together, she had messaged me a bunch just being like, oh, my God, like, did I sound too angry or dark or whatever? But I'm like, no, this is the stuff that nobody's really talking about. So her dad struggled with alcohol. And I think we all know somebody that does. It's not like some deep, scary secret that we all need to just put in a box and throw away. You know, we all know somebody that struggles. 
if not we struggle ourselves <laughs> and sometimes when you just put this stuff into words all those emotions and those resentments and guilt that you have surrounding alcohol or addiction problems it will just make you feel a little less crazy and if this episode hits close to home for anyone listening and i'm not trying to start a book club or anything but there's a book called perfect daughters by robert ackerman that is uh I mean, it was music to my ears or whatever. It, it was awesome. So I highly recommend that book. And there's also one that he wrote for the guys out there, too. So I'm not not discriminating. But uh, here she is. I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's just it's the raw truth behind what alcohol can do to a family and to a person. So here she is with her diamond hands. This is Courtney Sanini. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of how it goes with people I don't know. But I also like your Roaring Kitty shirt. Is that, uh, <laughs> I love it. Do you know who he is? Yeah, I mean, the GameStop guy, right? I'm, hevel- I'm heavily I mean, invested in GameStop. <laughs> Are you? Are you? That's awesome. You're talking to the right person. I day trade every morning. So <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Yep. Um, and AMC, well, both heavily yeah. invested. <laughs> That's awesome. What a, what a couple weeks it's been for you. Right. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, cool. I, I love it. It's been, I, if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's go. All right. I feel like it's been months in the making, really. You kind of, you messaged me six months ago or something with this story and I just kind of let it sit with me. And it's funny how when the time is right, it just, like things just kind of happen that way. It just feels like, okay, wait, hold on. I got to go talk to that Courtney girl that messaged me six months ago, you know? So (laughs) here we are, but in the time being, you and I uh, were Facebook friends. So I've been just kind of watching you on there and, and I'm not any palm reader or anything, but I can just, I'm picking up things from you. Like, like uh, everybody has a Courtney in their life. You know, I just really (laughs) think, (laughs) I really think they do. It's like everyone knows there's not going to be a dull moment when Courtney's around, let's say. I would agree with that. Okay. <laughs> it's probably like tempered maybe. as I've gotten older, but I would agree with that. Yes. <laughs> All right. So I'm kind of, I'm hitting it here. I'm getting it. Yeah. We don't know each other, but uh, I'm picking up those things. Just working in healthcare in my past, you know, there was always... I, there was always a Courtney, I think. I don't know. Just fun to be around, charismatic, just... um spicy just something all the time so here you are it's good to have you you are a nurse going to school right now for I mean you go ahead and tell us what you do every day so I am an RN and I am going to school um, to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner so it's a master's of science in nursing but when I'm done I'll be a, a psych MP were you always a psych nurse yeah I mean I got into nursing thinking I wanted to do, you know, trauma care. Um, I first got my taste of that in Afghanistan. I was not a nurse. And um, once I did, I worked in the ED as a tech for a while and that was pretty wild and, and hot and happening, but just in school, um, my whole mindset did kind of a 180 on mental health. I used to think it was kind of, you know, bullshit, stop being so depressed, go get out of your head, go get a job. Um, And in nursing school and during my clinical rotations, and I had an amazing 
psych professor, I was like, whoa, this is so wrong and did a complete 180. And then having friends in the military who suffered from post-traumatic stress, um, a lot of anxiety, um, you know, people suicide in the military, just, it totally changed my mind. So yes, I've always been a psych nurse since I graduated as an RN. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is. And hopefully that's a shift that's just happening now. Anyways, you see like more of a priority for mental health and or wanting to understand it at least, because I think, you know, I've grown up with um, mental health issues in, in my family and stuff like that. And for a long time, my only understanding of it was like, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> they're just a bitch or <laughs> whatever. Stop like whining. they're just trying to ruin my life here. <laughs> you know, like every organ of your body can be sick and everyone's empathetic to that. But the best way it was ever explained to me, it was like, your brain is your most important organ and it can be sick. It can be diseased. We know it can be diseased. We do autopsies on people with major mental illness and it's different than people without mental illness, you know? Mm -hmm. and so it can be just as sick. We just don't see it. You know, we don't see those physical manifestations except as behaviors or depression, anxiety, psychosis, whatever, you know. And then having that background in the military too, you're in the Navy. And so really just like catching on to all of that firsthand, you know, from experience, especially with those, the post-traumatic stress disorders and understanding it from a totally different lens than maybe just the average person as well. Right. Um, I got my first taste of it. Um, personally, um, I'd been back from Afghanistan for about six months. I was in Newport, Rhode Island, having the time of my life with my friends, having, you know, partying, having a great time. And I remember just sitting once in my living room on a, on a beautiful day. And I was watching a show, one of my favorite shows. And all of a sudden, my heart started jumping out of my chest. And it started pounding so hard and it felt like it felt like my heart wanted to leave my chest. And I was like, what the hell is going on? I, <laughs> I what's wrong with me? Am I having a heart attack? Am I dying? Like, did, you know, I have no idea what's going on here. And so, um, yeah, I, I eventually after a few episodes like that, went and saw some services while I was in the Navy, I was getting out. So I wasn't super concerned with what that would do for my career. Um, yeah. And I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Yeah. That, and how, so how old were you then at that time? I was 28 at that time. Okay. And it was probably, did your anxiety just kind of seem like, or it hadn't gotten to that point or when you were finally diagnosed with it, did you kind of like, did everything kind of all make sense for you? Like, Oh God, this is what I've been living with since I was like 15 or, you know, I don't know when the anxiety started, Sarah, it, um, it kind of, I don't even know if it made sense to me at the time. I just knew some weird things were going on. I think when we're young and we're healthy and, you know, people are successful and life's going well and all these doors are open for us and, and we're having a good time. We're good looking. We have our health for the most part, you know, if we're, if we're lucky enough to be like that, we all have these like underlying mental health issues or, or a lot of people. And, you know, but it doesn't seem exacerbated because you're young, you're fun, you're saucy. Like you say, I used to be, I used to be wild, do the craziest things, you know, and, 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 you know, maybe somebody who had like a bipolar as a young 20 something, you'd be like, oh, that's normal. They're just crazy. You know, that's crazy. So and so. Um, but then as we get older, it starts getting worse without treatment. And then um, 
I did start seeing, you know, in my father's side of the family, well, gosh, you know, I think my, you know, my dad has anxiety. I know other family members do. There's bipolar there. There might even be some, you know, major depression. I'm like, oh, is this familial? It's starting to make sense. But even at 28, I was still like, whatever, anxiety, who cares? I don't need anything. <laughs> glad, glad I know my heart. I'm not having a heart attack. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, was that something that you recognize like your mom's side versus your dad's side? Cause it always seems like having the two, you can kind of compare it like, <laughs> Oh, my dad's side has this. And since my mom's side's more normal, that's why it looks like this. Like, <laughs> I don't think you could put, I mean, I'm sure everybody has their story, but you could not put two more different families together. So on the dad's side, seven brothers and sisters, um, Sicilian grandfather, you know, German, Irish grandmother, seven children, um, you know, an affluent family, uh, you know, in where, where they're from, um, country club family, you know, the kids went to Europe, they were afforded those opportunities. Um, holidays with them were wild, crazy. Uh, everybody was welcome. There'd be fights between the brothers and sisters. People would be drinking. Everybody would be having a blast. And then they'd be laughing the next minute, always partying, always having a good time. My mom said she was never bored. Like that side of the family was just so fascinating to her and just kind of like, oh my God, I've never seen this because then you come to my mom's side of the family, you know, very humble, you know, people from Tennessee, you know, Protestants, you know, they just, you know, never had a lot of money, but they were rich and like, you know, they had, they had the four of them, an uncle and three, you know, or three female kids. My mom's an identical twin. And she would describe them as this. I love being with my family, but she's like, we're boring. Like, so the boring side and then this wild side. So yeah, that's, that's so funny. No mental health, no mental health issues on that side. Maybe a little, maybe a little drinking too much, but not even that not problematic. And then what's going on over here? So then do you kind of like identify with your dad's side a little bit more where you're like, yep, those are my people. That's where I come from. Or are you a healthy balance between the two? I'd have to say a healthy balance. Um, You know, my childhood growing up, we spent a majority of the time before, you know, my mom left my dad when I was 15. He had um, some pretty bad alcohol stuff starting then. And she left him and brought us back to Montana. But up until then, I spent the majority of my time with that, my father's side, um, having fun, doing fun things, beautiful home in the southern coast of California, going to the beach, you know, just doing every great big holiday together. I did, however, spend every summer of my life. My mom would leave for two months. It was hotter than hell where I grew up in Arizona and we'd come up to Montana for two months. So I spent every summer here with my mother's um, side of the family. So, um, you know, grew up having these cousins as close as sisters and brothers and, and, you know, very tight and just like a healthy you know, country summer. So I'd say there was like a mixture of the two. I wouldn't say, you know, I'm, I might identify more with my father because I, I, I'm like him, except I'm a girl, but I would say equally like felt distributed between the two and thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know. So, you know, what was that childhood? Like you're merging these two different family or, you know, these two sides of your family your mom and your dad. And and then by the time you're a teenager, your parents do separate because your dad has some underlying, you know, addiction problems or alcohol problems. I mean, it comes from this, 
you know, cool Sicilian family, but it's always exciting. I'm sure memories from there is always exciting, but then it's starting to catch up to him and, um, and it's starting to catch up to your family and your parents and you. And so you notice things are a little bit different than like maybe your friend's parents who drink or, you know, there's some things you can relate back to that's like, okay, that's a little off. So the childhood was very, um, yeah, you, you really put it succinctly. I, my youngest childhood, I would say up until about 10, I don't really remember too much dysfunction. I was too young to didn't care. You know, my mom did a good job of hiding things. My mother was very much in love with my father. I, I'd even argue that that love is still there. Um, but you know, that she trying to make it work, um, trying to, you know, make him happy. Um, my childhood was up until that point fun. I mean, family, like I said, did everything together. We would do things. I think my dad always, and mom too, kind of always thought that kids, part of why you have them is for the entertainment purposes. Okay. My mom always really wanted children, but my dad was like, yeah, I don't really care. You know, it was, you know, I don't really care if I have kids. In fact, maybe I don't even want them, but my mom wanted children. She always wanted to be a mom. And, um, we would do things like, you know, the whole family, would be on the beach in Del Mar. And, you know, my dad would be out there. He's a former Marine infantry officer digging trenches, like no kidding trenches out on the beach. And then, you know, the kids would go in there and play and we would find, and then we'd be digging around and find these huge diamonds. I mean, these huge, beautiful, like diamonds and treasure and and treasure boxes filled with stuff. And we'd, we'd lose our minds on the beach and everybody would be, we, our parents would be kind of having some, you know, drinks and laughing and they'd be like, Oh, go show these other people, go show everybody. And then there'd be adults who weren't even part of our party, like in our hole digging. Like my parents thought that was so funny. Um, And my dad had hidden those things and he always had firecrackers, you know, anytime there was a party, even in, I'm talking La Costa, California on a, a beautiful golf course where you know tiger woods used to golf like on a fourth of july he'd sneak down there and like light off firecrackers or on the beach or you know whatnot um i think you saw the picture of my dad in um colorado you know we were spelunking and i was there with some montana family my cousins at ashley and laurel my aunt and uncle and uh we were in a cave and my dad goes in first and he's got a backpack. I got to make this safe. I got to make sure everything's okay. And he hides, he strews it with like fool's gold, crystals, diamonds, everything. We go in there and we lose our mind. We thought we had struck it rich. Um, So that was like the good part of my childhood. I also remember periods of time where you know, maybe we were on the Tijuana border and my parents were arguing and I knew something was dangerous because my dad was doing something maybe illegal. Like he used to have, he had this hubris. He could get away with anything. I mean, he's the kind of guy who would at Disneyland, jump off the pirates of the Caribbean, right? At the, at the very beginning with all the gold and stuff, take a picture and get away with it. So he'd always been able to get away with things. He's good looking, he's charismatic, But then, you know, you start getting older and you start seeing these things where, oh, man, mom is really upset. You know, we're about to cross the Mexican-American border with illegal lobster because it's not in season. And, you know, the federales are going to stop us and we're going to all go to jail. And that's really dangerous, you know. So things like that. I started seeing those things um, more. But I mean, but my childhood was pretty good up until that point. It was Mm -hmm. fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like he nothing could go wrong when he was around. Not only was he like rebellious and, but also like, 
he's just kind of playing tricks on everybody and it's like hilarious and crazy and funny and he's so funny I can't I wish I was as funny as him I've he was just so funny he could tell a great story he would make everyone laugh you know everybody loved to be around him at that time he also liked to kind of orchestrate some of this um excitement I remember one time I couldn't have been more than my sister couldn't have been more than three maybe four so I had to be seven or eight we're in SeaWorld in San Diego, my mom, my dad, my sister, and I, and he had said to her, you stay close to me. You do not leave me. You're right next to us. Well, that little, you know, SHIT decided to go take off or whatever. And she got separated from us. And my mom started losing her mind and they saw her right away. Very quickly. They saw her and my mom wanted to run to go get my sister. Like, Oh my God. And my dad grabbed her and said, no, I want to see what she does. Like, I want to see how she reacts. So she's standing at the beginning of SeaWorld by this big fountain and whatnot, throwing her hands up and down and kind of turning sideways and like just frustrated and pissed off that we're not near her. (laughs) So that's kind of how my dad kind of did that stuff too. Let's see what she does. I mean, he just sounds like such an interesting guy because you're not only, you know, telling me these stories, but we've been talking too just at like his paintings and like what an incredible artist he was. And, you know, when you think about his alcohol problem or whatever, and his family and his uh, just his ability to bring crowds together, or you know, whatever, be the life of the party. It was just like he was talented on so many levels and a disease or whatever you want to call it, you know, his alcoholism. I hate to kind of seems like I stigmatize him that way or whatever, but it just, it gets a hold of some of the best people, you know? And, and it's almost like they can't keep up with themselves almost like life is just too exciting half the time, you know, it's just so exciting. And that's the only thing that they can really like settle down with. Does that kind of, Totally makes sense. I want to address when you said about the stigmatizing, don't say sorry for that. I found myself, you know, when we get further in the story, I won't, um, you know, give any sneak peeks, but in the ICU, you know, I, I found myself telling people that he was that because I wanted to show, you know, this is part of what his health issues are, but then also I would also counter it with like, how amazing is he? I mean, this is a man who went to, you know, Arizona state and was a Marine Corps infantry officer. And when my mom met him, you know, in the seventies in Washington, DC, she was working for the FBI and he was, you know, at at one of the bases out there, she looked at him and he took her breath away. So beautiful. My dad. And he, like you said, charismatic fun, but did have all these other talents. You know, my dad taught my sister and I at a very young age, he's like, don't care what other people think you have, you don't need any new friends. You have your friends and family, you do whatever the hell you want to do. And just, you, you remember that. And, but behind that facade of like being a hard ass, you know, I don't care what people think, whatnot. There was a very sensitive, like emotional person back there, you know, a little boy that maybe had hurts from when he was a child. Um, But under that veneer was like this very, intelligent man. He was very into civil war history, world history. He loved that. He had a passion for that. Um, I do too now because of that. And he was an amazing artist. Like I, I, you know, I just, so much talent, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll be sure to 
post those too, like with your permission, if I can, I mean, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're awesome. So, so yeah, you are, you kind of follow in your dad's footsteps, like throughout the majority of your twenties. You're so you're in the military too. You find yourself, like you told me a really cool story. You found yourself in Sri Lanka, right? Is that no, where it was? Um, it, it was Hong Kong. It was actually Hong Kong. Oh, that's Kong. right. Okay. And but- I mean, you're, on the phone and you talk about these military parties and I'm sure anyone in the military can think back to the parties that were going on when they were in the military or serving and just these wildest places you would all be together doing wild things. And then you, you know, stumble your back, stumble your way back to a hotel and call your dad. Cause you want to yep. talk to your dad drunk on the phone and, yeah. and you guys just like go off for hours. And I don't know, just share that story. Cause I think it's pretty cool. So, um, you know, now that I'm in psych, I psychoanalyze everything, but you, you know, you're always looking for your father's approval or your parents' approval for all that thing. But my mom loved us so much and was always the kind, easy go on one. I love you no matter what. So I feel like there was always just more, you know, pressure to make your dad happy. Right. My sister would say the same thing. Um, so before I, I was getting ready to graduate from high school in Billings and I'm, you know, about to start looking for colleges. And my dad very clearly said, you are going to college, but I'm not paying for it. We are not paying for your college. You will join the military like we did and you'll have them pay it for you. There's no reason not to. So, you know, I filled out those ROT scholarships, you know, army, Navy, whatnot. And then out of nowhere, he gets a wild hair. What about, um, I'm going to have you apply to the, the Naval Academy. You know, that's the best of the best as far as military, you know, prestigiousness of whatever. And so I go ahead and do that. It's a very arduous process. You have to get a congressional nomination. I had no idea what the hell I was getting into. I, I, I'll tell you that right now. As an 18-year-old kid, I was like, eh. This can't be, I don't know what this is. I'm, I'm just going to do it to help my, you know, my dad says do it. So I do it. And, um, you know, I have to go through these congressional like meetings with the, you know, Senator Burns is kept people who did that and Congressman Rick Hill and some other, I mean, at the Sheridan Billings, I'm this 18 year old kid. And for whatever reason, I had um, met with somebody on uh Rick Hill's um, board before, and he was very impressed with just how professional I was. Like my dad made us very professional. This is how you talk, whatnot. And so um, when I got to that board, they were basically like, this is the one we want. And so I did the board and then, you know, months go by or weeks go by. Um, it went well, I hadn't heard anything. And my mom pulls me out of Skyview and she's like, um, the principals there or whatever they're called. And they pull me out of the school. My mom's literally in tears. And she's like, you got the principal choice nomination from Congressman Rick Hill. So congressmen and senators can give, you know, a bunch of nominations, but still those kids, those candidates have to sit in front of a board in Annapolis and be like, okay, well, this one was the captain of of a hockey team, you know, and took the team to state. But even better than that, she was a female playing on a a men's team. So like, we want this one, you know, they, they, they compare everybody and they vote to let them go or not. But because of this principal choice nomination I'd gotten, I just had to meet the minimum requirements. Like I didn't have to go through that board process. I just had to pass the basic physical things of the SAT smart enough. Like, you know, I I met the minimum requirements and somehow, you know, get to go to this amazing school. So, you know, that was a huge source of like pride for my dad. He was like, my God, like my kid is going to the United States Naval Academy. So, um, 
hey, I impressed dad. He sends me, you know, <laughs> yeah. he came out a few times. I mean, just a huge source of like pride for him. So I follow in his footsteps. I go into the Navy. Um, I remember one time even wanting to, you can go into the Marine Corps or the Navy from Annapolis. That's the way it works. Cause there's not a, a Marine Corps Academy. And because my dad had been a U.S. Marine, I was like, oh, I'm going to go join the Marine Corps. <laughs> And he said, absolutely not. You are going to go into the Navy. It's a better, more conducive environment for women. Um, I don't want you, you know, doing these things. You're going to go be on a ship where it's safe, where it's more comfortable, where you have more opportunities, um, which was the case, I guess, at that time. Um, it's gotten a lot better since. Um, and so then, you know, I graduate, I go into the Navy. Um, and yes, I find myself deployed overseas. And, and I could always relate to my father. I have an uncle who's a colonel in the Marine Corps too, and I could talk to him about it. He, um, you know, he'd had several combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, but that was just something we could like bond on. It was something, you know, that we could talk about. So I would find myself, um, you know, I did two Northern Arabian Gulf deployments. I did spend a year in Afghanistan, but on those ship deployments, you do pull into ports, you know, Australia, um, you know, God, Dubai. You must have joined, did you join right before 9-11? I so mean, a I couple joined, years. Yeah, 9-11 happened while I was, that's an actually, I'm sorry if this goes all over the place. I know you'll keep us no. on track. But 9-11 uh, was huge. I was a senior at Annapolis. I was a first class midshipman and I was no kidding. It's the weirdest story. All the seniors have a leadership forum when they are about to graduate um, and admirals and generals come in because we're going to go be officers in the military. And this is our opportunity to kind of ask them questions. What can we do to make our career better? How can we better be better um, you know, officers to our enlisted? Just, you know, tons of brass you know, in Annapolis, which is not far from D.C. or the Pentagon. And so we'd have these seminars. And when 9-11 happened, I'll never forget it. I'm sure like most people will never forget where they were. But I was in one of those, um, you know, those symposiums. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, you know, or just a bozo kid, not really paying much attention to anything, but kind of like excited by all this, you know, brass around us and getting to talk to them like normal people. And aides, like admirals and generals aides start coming in and out, in and out, like a lot. Cell phones are ringing. Generals are getting up. Admirals are getting up. And it went on for quite a bit of time. And um, <laughs> this is such, like, I get goosebumps thinking about it. I'm sure a lot of people do when they think about what the exact moment was. But one of these Navy aides come in, came in. He was um, a lieutenant commander. He's in his blues. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, the United States is under attack. And... <laughs> Boom. That was the end of our <laughs> symposium. Like, you know, the admirals, and the generals get up, you know, I think at that point, um, I don't think the Pentagon had been hit at that point, but, uh, you know, they, we all went back to our classrooms. That was the end of our symposium. And I was a kid who'd gone into Annapolis in a time of relative um, peace. And then now we're in war. So it was totally different, totally changed yeah. everything. Yeah. Oh my God. Did that kind of pump I mean, were you just like ready for it? Like, or were you just like, oh shit, I was just trying to pay for my college here. Exactly. Oh, that's God. Yes, that's fair because a lot of people do, you know, ROTC or, you know, most of people want to, you know, do their five years, get out, go work on Wall Street, go work for some like, you know, Fortune 500 company, you know, whatever. And, uh, 
you know, I was just this kid from Montana, just didn't really have many expectations. I still didn't know what the hell was going on at this point. I was senior. And then, um, yeah, it was really kind of nerve wracking. You know, I know some of the people who are more in touch and stuff are real excited. Um, but I, I was like, Oh God, what does this mean? What the yeah, hell does this mean? I, I don't even I, know. No. Cause I'm sure like the years following that, you know, people who thought, you know, who had your idea were like, I'll join the military to pay for my education, blah, blah, blah. We're like, in no way in hell am I even, you know, I'm not, I'd rather pay thousands of dollars than even take my chance, you know? Yeah. Like, and that's a fair statement because um, from that time on, you know, I can't even name all the classmates and, and, and graduates um, who've been yeah. killed because of that and who are no longer with us and it's it's sombering and um sobering and you just you think about it and you know wow and that's where we came to kind of go full circle but back to those stories you know i deployed deployed twice to the nag um hit hong kong hit singapore hit australia three times hawaii you know and you work hard you're out at sea for hundreds of days at a time so when and you're collecting money and tax-free and and you get to hong kong and man you go crazy it, it is truly a stereotype about sailors in a port man we go and drink the town dry we go and party have a great time um yeah and so going back to that story about my dad i was in a a beautiful hotel called the Shangri-La in Hong Kong had a night all night partying with my friends. Great time. I get home or I get back to my hotel room wasted and, and call my dad and we talk for hours and he's like, where are you? I was like, I'm in Kowloon. And he's like, what hotel? And I said, the Shangri-La. And he's like, I was there in the seventies when I hit Hong Kong. Like, I can't believe this. And we just talked for hours. He was yeah. so funny. Yeah. And you said to, you know, your mom just like unconditionally loves us. We don't worry about our moms loving us as much as we always worried about our dads loving us, you know, like right. there's just something about that. I don't know. I've heard other guests say it too. And, and so for you having the Navy and, and his background as well, did it really feel like, okay, this is my thing with my dad that I can connect with him on. Like, this is makes me feel like really secure in our relationship. I have this, I can call him back at these foreign hotels and, or I can call him, you know, in the afternoon. And this is what we have together. It like, it felt like your relationship was very valid because of this military connection. I would say, yes, that was a, a key point that we had to connect on. I will say that um, my father, he, he wasn't even sure if he wanted kids. Moms love their kids unconditionally. My dad loved my sister and I very intensely, like very much and very protective. However, I don't care. You know, people may be annoyed at me for saying this, but there's always a child who you relate to more. And so my father, from the time I was born, I was his daughter. And my sister, when she was born, she was my mom's daughter. And there was not like, we did not feel not loved by either parent. We felt equally loved. You just love them. Like my mom says, you love them differently. And so even as a small child, you know, I was aggressive. I was the one who he molded. He wanted boys. And so he raised my sister and I to be boys. I mean, we had bull haircuts. We had ridiculous clothes. We wore like tennis shoes with Velcro. I mean, we were not the cool kids. Like <laughs> he did not care. He raised us to be aggressive playing soccer to not let be intimidated by men we're as good as men you're as smart as men and you're gonna go and take over the world so um 
I guess the military thing was just another thing to connect on because my dad could relate to that very much so. But I was always his daughter. Yeah. And so how did your dad's how did your guys's relationship evolve as like your dad's drinking problem evolved? Is that right? an okay question to ask you about this? I mean, just as we transition into this. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I get to be 15 at this point. I've seen the um, dynamic in my family change. You know, my father is getting into more fights with family and friends. There's more times where he comes home and my parents are fighting and my mom is crying. Um, I have traumatic memories of him being so drunk. My mom would not let him in the house. And she would call my grandfather and say, hey, um, come and get your son. And for whatever reason, my grandfather could bring my father in. So they, you know, my grandfather lived in the same town. So he would take him home and, you know, let him sleep it off. So I started noticing that happened uh, more often, started knowing more physical altercations. Um, Dad started being more intense with my sister and I, and we were never like, like physically abused or anything, but just like intense psychological, you know, shit. I'd be woken up and at one or two in the morning when dad got home and like, he'd wake my sister and I, and my mom would be standing in the doorway and he'd be pontificating about life and, and where it goes, you know, that's not normal for a kid. So that started happening more frequently. You know, my mom's phone calls home, got more um, upset. She was sadder. And eventually she made the correct and healthy decision to get her two daughters out while we were still young enough. And not screwed up enough and get us out of there. So she moved us to Montana. So it started changing then. Um, I do remember having to go spend time with him um, and he'd still have these behaviors, you know, um, drinking, getting angry. Um, You know, there's two, there's a couple, there's different kinds of drunks. You know, you have, you have the happy drunks. I have an uncle who, man, he was the funniest to be around when he was loaded. Everybody loved to be around. him. he's so funny. But when my dad drank, as wonderful as he was and as charismatic and funny, he became mean, like nasty and mean. And so um, we started seeing that. And, you know, at that point I'm becoming an adult and, you know, I don't want to see that dad. So he wouldn't, you know, drink or whatnot. But um, as we started getting older, you know, again, people's mental health issues become worse if they don't get treatment, their health becomes, you know, less, they become older, they're realizing some failed, you know, dreams, you know, regrets and stuff like that. So drinking gets worse, you know, I am so fortunate. Um, My father did marry um, a, a wonderful Mexican woman um, from Arizona. I have this huge Mexican step family and God bless her. We call Maria the saint. She is a beautiful woman, a lovely woman, a loving woman. And he, he married her and that kept my dad straight for another 20 years. Um, but those two families were kept very separate because alcoholics, you know, they, they tell lies. Um, they want to make themselves look better. If, if my sister and I had become, you know, we'd set up this boundary with our dad. Yes, we have this relationship with you. We'll see you. Um, But even then we would have times with him where he would go off the deep end and have a very upsetting experience. And so then we wouldn't see him for a while. Um, But my stepmother and that side of the family kept him healthy for a lot longer. Um, But those borders started going up in my late twenties, early thirties. Um, And, you know, he'd go through periods of time where he was sober for a long time and would be real successful where he was from. He's a real estate agent, a farmer, hard worker. I mean, my dad 
was the hardest working guy you'll ever meet. And he would be very successful and his marriage with my stepmother would be good and strong. But then, you know, he'd always say to me, I just get bored, Courtney, and I start drinking again. And then you compile that with regrets. He regretted getting out of the Marine Corps when he did. Um, he had regrets, I'm sure, with my mother and our family. Um, you know, his family started to dissolve with mental illness, drug addiction, stuff like that. And that whole side of the family, that's a totally different story. It just kind of fell apart. People moved away. Relationships were kind of burned. Mental illness got so strong that people couldn't be around other people, you know, so. And when did he paint? Like, did you always know your dad was a great artist or, you know, because yeah. it's like alcoholics, you have to, you have to re- be able to replace you one extreme with something else or else it's not going to work or else you are going to get bored and you're going to drink again. You know, like for someone who had such a intense mind and intense thoughts on the world, of course he would drink again. If, if he's not challenging himself every day, you know, like he's got to, he's got to feed that thing inside of him and whether, you know, and you can't do it on one side of the spectrum, the unhealthy side, because it'll just go back, you know, it'll never, be successful. So, I mean, it's like, God, dad, just go lock yourself inside and go paint some damn pictures. Cause those are freaking awesome. <laughs> he painted all through college. Um, you could see his work obviously progress and get better. Um, just as he, I, I remember, um, I kind I want to say it was like 1993. I, again, my family had an agricultural, huge farming business in Arizona when I was a child, like from, I think that started in the sixties. So my dad left the Marine Corps to go be, to run this farming business. Um, and I want to say it was 1993 when the North American free trade agreement happened, you know, between, um, you know, North America, essentially that kind of killed the small farmers. A lot of them, they could no longer compete with like the major, major agricultural like institutions. So the small time farmer kind of either assimilated into them, changed or whatever, or they were done. So ours was done. Um, and I remember my dad painting really avidly at that time. He had a lot of time on his hand. He's like, I'm just, we have enough money. We're good enough. We're well off enough where I'm just going to take a break and just start painting. And, and that was a very, um, prosperous painting time for him. Um, you know, you go flash forward to the future. He still loves to paint. He's an avid collector. There's some funny stories there I can maybe share, but he would collect historical things from the civil war, from world war II, like guns. My dad had an arsenal. I mean, I'm thinking things you're not even legally allowed to have in this country. And like, like he would collect all these things. He was such, you know, he's a He's a little boy, I guess, essentially, when you came down to it. He was a little boy with his, like, candy shop of stuff. Um, but as he got older, the drinking um, and age, he couldn't hold a, a brush straight anymore. You know, the tremors. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so he would have these periods where he wouldn't drink anymore. And by this time, you're in your 20s. You know that dad's got a problem. Um, you want him to be better but he's probably he's not always convincing of that right and so are you establishing boundaries with him like how are you maintaining a relationship with him so um mostly via the phone um you know and it was probably more going into my 30s you know my sister would even my sister was a lot angrier at my father when my mom left him because I was 
15, 16 at that point, he'd already put his hand on, you know, made his imprint on me, but my sister still needed a father. And so that was a huge disappointment. So we talk about it a lot. It's not something she wouldn't share, but you know, she was a lot more pissed at my dad. She was a hell of a lot angrier at him. So when we would go spend time with my father, if the two of us did, um, you know, and he'd have one of his meltdowns, as I like to call it, she'd get even more pissed. And she was, she started setting up boundaries a lot earlier than I did. And God bless her. She started getting treatment and help for that a lot sooner than me, because this is the person I love the most. Like it'll be okay. I'm strong enough to not need help for this, but she was healthier in that sense. So those boundaries did start going up. Um, You know, I would say by my mid thirties, my sister was basically not seeing my dad at all. Um, I think the last time I could be wrong. I hope I can't remember. Sorry, uh, Jess, but I think one of the last times she spent time with uh, him, we went to Costa Rica for one of his cousin's um, uh, marriages, had a great time, except when dad had a freaking meltdown and he did. And it was just guaranteed for that to happen. So as I got, you know, in my mid thirties and whatnot, my family, my mother and sister specifically would be like, God, why do you still go and spend time? Why do you still put yourself in these positions, you know, you know, what's going to happen. Um, and at that point, our, our relationship was mostly, you know, via the phone. And, but at that point in my mid thirties, moving on, you know, even in 30, moving on, you, you could pick up the phone and I could tell he was drunk. I'd be like, dad, I love you. I'm not going to have this conversation with you right now. And that was the end of it. Or you'd pick up the phone or call him and he sounded healthy and you'd have a great conversation for hours, you know? But it's funny, alcoholics think that they can hide things from people. And, you know, when you grow up with it, I can look at you. I can look at your eyes. And I knew he'd been drinking. I could smell him and know he'd been drinking. I could hear one word out of his mouth. He'd been drinking. You know, you can't hide that from the people who know you the best. Yeah, but you did like you knew it. It was like, you weren't going to push it. You knew when he was drinking, you're like, I'm not even going to go there anymore. Um, but then, and then you said you went to on a trip with him. Right. And it was kind of like your final hope. And this was before he died. Right. This was before he died. Right. But, and was this almost like you're like, there's so much hope involved, you know, there's, you see this guy with such potentials and, just an amazing person. And you know who he is under the addiction, the alcohol, like all his demons. Right. And so you can just hold on to that for so long until you can't. Right. Right. But so here you go. You're going to give it one last shot or maybe was that kind of how it is? You're going to take a trip with dad in your thirties. I honestly was kind of guilted into it, Sarah, honestly. So my mother and my sister and I had taken a trip to Iceland, um, at the end of August and my dad was pretty, you know, he was, he still loved my mom too. He'd he'd say things like, because alcoholics can even be a little bit of sociopaths. Like, Hey, what if I came on that trip too? I'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? Dad, mom does not want you anywhere near her. Like in his mind, that could work out well. We have a great time in Iceland together. I'm like, you're insane. Whatever. <laughs> so, you know, I was hurtful for him. But at the same, so my mom and sister and I go to Iceland. We have a blast. Like it was great. I, I can't wait to go back to Iceland. But um, so I did agree to go with him. He was going to go see his mother in Oregon. Um, and I don't think he'd seen my grandmother in 10 years um, just for distance and whatnot. Um, and 
I agree to go with him. He promises me, um, you know, I, gosh, I'm, I'm 39 at this point. I'm not a child. And I also know my dad has an addiction and mental health issues, anxiety. You know, he was being treated by a psychiatrist at the VA, full VA benefits. You know, he's like, God, I guess I have some issues. You know, he was like doing things. Um, but I was like, dad, I'll go with you. We had this trip planned. It was like seven days, nine days. We we're going to drive from Oregon all the way down to San Francisco. We were going to stop um, and go fishing in Tahoe, go see friends, go see family, like go do things. You know, my dad had always taken us, our family to Colorado to go fishing. Like he wanted to have some of those nostalgic memories and stuff and, and spend time together and go do like, you know, go see the war museums in San Francisco and stuff like just do that together. And I said, okay, I will do this with you, dad. I, I I've just come back from Iceland. I'm in grad school. This is a hardship for me financially um, grad school wise, but I love you enough to go and support you while you see grandma. Cause probably in his mind, it might've been one of the, I mean, my grandmother's getting high eighties at this point, you know, this is probably going to be the last time he sees his mother and he loved his mother. Um, and so I go, you know, I meet him and we go see my grandmother. That was good. Um, she was healthy at the time um, and she looked good. And I think their visit went well the first day. And then the second day we were going to spend time with her and leave and head to, I don't know, we went to Reno, Nevada. It was our next stop. Um, and that day I could tell he had been drinking, you know, he would, we, we started the morning with a breakfast at the, at the Marriott or something had a good talk, looked good. He's like, you have some schoolwork to do before we go see grandma in the hotel room. I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go. There's a, there's a Creek over here. He brought some poles, you know, that's what he wanted to do. I said, fine, dad. I was like, okay, but I, I have some school assignments to do. Comes back. He's different. You know, alcoholics hide things. They drink well, you, you know, and they think they're smart enough. I was like, you son of a bitch. So we go and see my grandmother and, you know, he, he tries to make her laugh. And I think that, I think they had a nice visit at the end, but he said something really shitty to my aunt. And then he and I got into the car, you know, I said goodbye to them, but I could tell. So then we get in the car and drive to Reno and he's just nasty. I mean, I remember a fight. I was like, you have been drinking. I was like, I told you, if you drink on this trip, I am flying home to Rhode Island. Like, I'm not going to subject myself to this anymore. I don't have to. I'm an adult. I, I don't have to be forced to spend time with you when you're like this. And so, you know, it was like an eight hour drive. And I remember getting in a fight with him at the gas station. He called me a bitch. He uh, was, you know, people at the gas station were appalled. I was like, you got, can you just calm, get your shit together? You know, like, Ah, and he, you know, so we get to, you know, Reno, Reno, we stay at this nice hotel. I'm, I'm like, dad, we need to talk about this, please. Let's talk about this. I was even willing at that point to forgive him if he would just freaking talking to me about it. And mm -hmm. I knew it was hard for him to see his mother for the last time and, and all these things. And, you know, he didn't, he just went to the casino and gambled. He kept pushing it off, promising me, promising me. That's, that's what alcoholics do too. They promise you, they promise you promising me. We talk about it. Um, I, so I saw him gambling. I went up to him. He was nasty. He was playing like craps. He was doing something that the guy at the crab table didn't want him to do. He'd been being warned. And I was like, this is embarrassing. Like I'm going back to my room. So I went back to my room, made a decision. I'm leaving, wrote this three page letter, um, went to sleep. And the next morning, um, we had a joining room. So I just quietly opened the door and put this letter on him. He was sleeping in his bed. He was so small. Like I just, I remember him being so small. 
And I left. I took a, an Uber to uh, the Reno airport and I flew back to my boyfriend in Rhode Island. Did you talk at all from the um, from the time of that letter to the three months later? That So two weeks went by and I didn't hear from him. Um, and then finally I'm leaving. I was working at a contract in Massachusetts. I'm leaving work and he calls and I'm like, I haven't heard from my dad in two weeks, you know, and in between those two weeks, I, you know, started getting counseling. I was like, Jesus Christ, like you are an adult child of an alcoholic there. You work in mental health. Like what the hell is wrong with you? You need to get help. So I'd started going to a counselor at that point and getting help, um, almost like a grief counselor to grieve the loss of my father to this disease. You know, he couldn't keep it together for those seven days. Like Jesus, dad, like, come on. Like you had one thing to do. So he had lost control at that. I mean, he lost control a long time ago, let's be honest. But, um, so yeah, I wrote this letter. I said, you know, I don't have to love you or I don't have to love your addiction. I'll always love you, but this is, this is where we're at now. And I will no longer subject myself to this shit. I don't have to. So two weeks go by. Um, he calls me. I pick up the phone again. I love him more than anyone in the world. And he apologizes in his way. And it is one of the saddest things I can think of with my dad, because he said, you know, um, I was in this museum at a submarine museum and San Francisco. And all I could think about was that I wanted my daughter there and his voice cracked. And at that point I knew my father had recognized that he had lost any and all ability. And, um, there'd been some relationship problems with family. Like people were spending less time with him, telling him not to come around him. My stepmother, I was spending more time with her daughter who lived in, in San Diego, not at home with him in Arizona. You know, he had realized at that point, like my actions I'm alone because of my actions. You know, my wife has left me. My child who loves me more than anything is no longer going to, you know, be bear witness to this. And, and my other family, like I I could tell in his voice, you know, I know that sounds cheesy, but, and, and so we made up, I said, okay, dad, I understand. I love you. Um, I, I want you to know those boundaries are there. I want you to know that I'm getting counseling for these issues that you've caused. Um, and that was probably at the end of September and he, he, he made some changes. He tried to go to AA. He told me he was going to him. He's like, I went to three meetings. I can't, you know, I can't be around those people. We're just so different. I I can't relate to this. And I was like, dad, there's other kinds of meetings. Like you just have to find one that's good for you. But he tried, he even started, um, getting put on a drug. It's going to elude me. It does every single time. Um, his psychiatrist put him on antabuse, which is a drug that will make you violently ill if you drink alcohol. So he'd started that. But even in those months before his death in December, there were a few times he went off their wagon and I just tried to be supportive. I was like, I love you. Like that's part of recovery. Like it's okay. Just get back up the next time. But I was no longer as emotionally invested that that barrier had been set up you know, I wish because you started to get some help. You said in that two weeks from that time you left to the time you heard him and you started to get some therapy and see some things and try to grieve a man who wasn't the father that you had in mind. Right. Well, when they had introduced the adult children of alcoholics, did, was that the first time you had heard of that? I'd never, so I'm embarrassed. (laughs) I'm embarrassed of being a psych professional and not knowing this. Yeah. And, um, I was shocked and, and, um, 
I, I will tell this, if anybody's listening about mental health, you have got to find, I think everyone should be in therapy. I don't think there's one person who should not be with a therapist. I think you absolutely have to find the therapist that works for you. You have to have a therapeutic relationship. And in some ways, you know, depending at what stage of therapy you're in, you need to be challenged. Um, I'm a psych professional. I'm going to school to be a psych MP. Like, I don't think that I know more than these social, you know, these people who, these therapists, but I know a lot more. So like, or, or I know, I know more than say the average person that they see. So it was hard for me to find um, a therapist. The one I was seeing at the time, she challenged me once and maybe, you know, eight sessions. And I was like, I have to end this because I'm not being, I need someone to evoke that emotional response and make me confront what happened to me as a child. And, and, and this, so um you know, yeah. I don't know where I was going with there, but yeah, everyone well, should be in therapy. I was seeing a therapist. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But it's gotta be, and this is maybe off subject too, but I mean, I have a, one of my best friends here is in the PhD program for psychology, for neuropsych and she's in therapy and she's like, I know what they're trying to do to me. Like, I know <laughs> this tactic. I study this. And, and then finally it's like, she shopped around and found one that she loves, you know, yeah. the one that challenged her, the one that worked for her. It's like, yes, don't just go just because you had one or a few bad times and it's not going to be fixed instantly. It takes a long fricking time. And yeah, we all need a therapist like yes. we all do okay but um but you but, said something good there like don't stop because of that one or two bad experiences you will find someone who mm -hmm. does what needs to be done and every single person needs to be in therapy right yeah and to like I think quitting drinking gets a bad rap too. Like for the things that your dad said, well, I don't relate to these people at AA or whatever. Okay. Well then find something you can relate to because just because you don't fit in at AA doesn't mean you should keep drinking. Like right. there's something wrong here, you know? And, and it's like, find whatever works for you. And, and if that, is working to make you better than stick with that. You know, like it's, we're all so individual with whatever way we go about things, but it, it's true. And it, it's so funny because you said like, you're a psych nurse and you tell people what to do to get better, but you're like half the time, I don't take my own advice. Like, <laughs> and neither do nurses. I mean, smoking's bad, but how many smoker smoking nurses are out there? You There's know, a lot like, of them. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, but it's so funny how you can be like so educated on the subject and uh, don't follow your own. Completely ignore any and all healthy like things to do. And like and like even with him, it's like, OK, these things aren't working for you, but it, it gets down to a lot of times. And, you know, you'll see this with different kinds of mental health issues like he is slightly narcissistic. You know, I am strong enough to do this on myself. I, I, mm -hmm. You know, my whole family is now like left me. I'm, I'm going to do it on my own. Mm -hmm. No, you cannot do this on your own. Like people need support. Like we're, we're social beings. You cannot do yeah. something that's taken away your life or a major mental illness alone. There's no way. No, no, you really can't do a lot of things alone. <laughs> oh my God. It's no, um, raise a child, have a healthy family. Work. Well, and that's something you learn too. Like uh, in the adult children of alcoholics too, like you try to do as many things as you can do on your own. You try to be as independent as you can, because I mean, that's part of your whole survival skill and the whole scheme of things. I mean, when you got a dad passed out drunk, 
you got to figure out how to get to the dentist on your own. And that's not like from, I'm sure people are like, huh? But I mean, (laughs) just like as an example, I wasn't saying from experience like that, but it's true. I mean, there's a lot of shit like that, that you can go back to and be like, oh, oh yeah. Adverse childhood, adverse childhood events for anybody who is an adult and is wondering what's wrong with them. Just, just Google that test and take it. Adverse childhood events. Seriously. God, what they are, it's, ah, and to like, functions around that disease, you know, and it's so frustrating when it's alcohol, like it can be so frustrating, you know, it's like, so then it is, it's like this, this time passes your dad, does he kind of get help? Does he kind of get sober from the time before his accident? Yeah. Like, you know, from that time, the, the letter and between, you know, Christmas Eve when the accident happened, um, he would go off and on. Um, I would say a majority of that was sober. I remember one or two times where he would relapse and he'd call, I'd call him. But if anything, you're kind of changing in that time period because you're getting help and you're kind of seeing your life through another, you like your past and your relationship with your dad and all these things are kind of changing for you almost. And then Christmas Eve comes around and had you made any plans to maybe see him in the near future or. So I was in Rhode Island at the time. Um, and my mother and sister had, we had made these plans for them to come out for nine days, um, in new England, you know, my boyfriend's there. We had these great things planned, like a beautiful, a new England Christmas, you know, we're going to go to the Boston ballet and see the nutcracker we're going to go to all these like amazing restaurants and do these Christmas tours and go see the mansions and just enjoy each other's time. I will say this. I always enjoy like spending time off my mom's side of the family. It's just enjoyable. Like it's, it could be boring, but we'll hang out for hours. It's just enjoyable, you know? And, um, we, my dad was, um, you know, sad about that, that this was going on without him. Um, and that he was alone. I think that was another recognition of like a problem. Um, so we have this, my mom gets in, my sister flew in on early Christmas Eve. We go to this Irish bar with my friend and and have a drink. And then my mom gets in later and we're having dinner and I get a phone call from my uncle. And I'm like, what the hell is my uncle calling me on Christmas Eve? Like, this is weird. And I pick up the phone and he very, he's a, he's a Marine, Marine officer too. He's retired at this point, but like the kind of guy who jumps out of like, you know, high altitude airplanes, like special forces Marine, like very calmly says, um, court, your dad's been in a pretty bad car accident. And all I could remember Sarah and it's embarrassing and, and leads to mixed emotions as I was like, I wish you fucking died. Like you, you get into this car accident. I'm here with my family you know, like you're ruining Christmas again, you son of a bitch. Why didn't you just die? And that makes me sound super harsh at this time, but years before there's been many times where I wish my dad would just die because of the pain that he'd caused, he would drink and drive, you know, horrible, violent, like I may not have conveyed that, but just like I, I, I had wished him to be dead in the past. It would take away pain. And, and I'm sitting having this lovely dinner with my mom and my sister. And, you know, my dad had been like, you know, really depressed, but like we talk all the time, but he, he gets in this car accident. I was like, you've ruined this. Why didn't you just die? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm upset, you know, tears, you know, uncle Rob, or my uncle's like, listen, um, you know, I'll let you know when you need to come out here. It's pretty bad. He's in the trauma ICU. He broke a lot of bones, but he's, you know, he was talking and whatnot and they have him sedated and intubated on a trauma ICU. And, um, you know, your aunt is here with me and we'll let you know when it gets bad. And I was like, okay, so an outburst of tears, upset again, good job, dad. You did it again. You made us upset. You made, you got what you wanted. You're the center of attention. Um, was, it was a bummer of a night. Um, lots of tears. Anyways, Christmas happens. Um, you know, we have a decent day and whatnot. And that evening, um, my uncle calls and he said, you need to get out here. If, if you want to see your father, um, things are not going well, you need to come out here. And I remember my aunt in the background, this is my father's sister yelling in, in the background of the phone, you need to tell her, you need to tell her. And I'm like, tell me what, like what? Like, I know my father, like what? And um, my uncle said, well, when the orthopedic surgeon was in there um, fixing, you know, the 12 bones that your father died in this rollover, um, he found lesions all over his bones. Um, and if you work in healthcare, you know that that means he was riddled with bone cancer. So we got on a plane the next morning. We booked our flights. Um, my sister, my mom, and I, Mike, stayed home with the dog. And, and we got onto a flight. And we were in um, San Diego by 11 o'clock on the 26th in the morning. And we went right to the ICU. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is. It comes back to that disease element. Thing. Like, it's all about him no matter what like even if he had bone cancer and he was your dad that you were taking care of it's like god forbid you get away and go hang out with your mom's side you gotta go freaking back and take care of your dad and now and not that the alcohol killed (laughs) not that the alcohol killed him but i'm it's just like holy shit it's always all about you and it and yet probably sounds terrible saying that but it's just like it but you get those feelings, you you know, when your life revolves around somebody's um, disease, that's how it feels. <laughs> I mean, the alcoholics can be not all alcoholics. I don't mean to marginalize anyone. My experience with my alcoholic father, um, they're very selfish. Did I, do I think my dad had that accident on purpose? Absolutely not. That was an accident. My dad never wore a seatbelt. I would be in the car with him screaming at him. You know, he had this, he'd had this karate injury in like the late eighties and in all fairness, it was difficult for him to put on a seatbelt, but my God, dad, like we know seatbelts save lives. Had he been wearing a seatbelt that day, he would be alive. Like, but he wasn't, um, he, re- you know, and he reached behind his car probably for something he shouldn't have, you know, cell phone or something, um, enrolled single vehicular rollover. He was, um, upside down for hours, um, before somebody noticed him off the road. Um, the highway patrol of California came, they life flighted him to the trauma center. He was sober alert. They did not suspect alcohol or anything. And he was even tested. Like his toxicology was negative. He was just driving up on Christmas Eve to go spend time with my uncle. So he wasn't alone, you know, a drive he'd done a thousand times, you know? So then ultimately, what is it? Do you have to make the decision with your sister, with your family? What is it that, you know, your dad doesn't leave that hospital? So when we got there on the 26th, um, there was this very experienced ICU nurse. I want to say her name was Allison. She was hardcore, you know, and she's like, listen, guys, I, 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 I don't tell people anything, you know, 
people live all the time, but you guys work in healthcare and my dad's kidneys were not turning on. Um, after you go through a traumatic surgery like that, you need your kidney to start filtering your blood. Um, they were not starting. Um, as a nurse, one of the first things you learn is after a surgery or something, you want to see urine coming out of that Foley catheter. And if it's not, or it's bloody or something like there's an issue and there was just no urine coming. Um, and the head of the trauma ICU at um, Sharps Memorial is this woman. She's very squared away, very matter of fact. She sat my sister and I down and she said, listen, girls, like, this is what's going on. We will keep going as far as you want. Um, we are moving into the stages where we're going to have to put a trach in your dad. Um, we, our treatments are going to become more invasive. Um, it's going to become like harder. Um, and you guys have all the information that you've been provided with. And she's like, and you work in healthcare. And, but it, there was never any judgment, never any pressure, never anything. And my sister's four years younger than me and, and I'm the one in charge. And my, this is what made it hard. My dad always wanted us to do everything to keep him alive. He's like, you keep that going. I don't want to die. He's afraid of death. I think because of regrets in his life and stuff. And at that point I lost it. And I was like, we're not doing this. We're not going to put my father through more invasive treatments. It was just a rapid cascade of organ system failures. You know, this going wrong, this going wrong, this going, we cannot, you know, keep this up. It's just going to get worse. And, and I made that decision. One thing I've always been good about is making a freaking decision. And I said, um, we're going to stop this now. And I, at that point, we made that decision. Um, it happened. We let him go. Um, and he was surrounded by people that he loved and um, we just let him go. And it was sad because hours before that, you could feel, I could feel my dad wasn't there anymore. He, 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 we'd been losing him that whole day. And before then, you know, we could crack a joke at him and he could squeeze our hand and stuff and like whatnot. But hours before we made that decision, he was probably pretty much not there anymore. And we let him go. And I just put my head on his chest and listened to his breasts. Cried. And uh, my sister was there and holding his hand. And, you know, we said everything we need to. Like she'd said, Dad, I'm sorry I was so angry. And, and she loves him. You know, that's it. But she made her peace. I made my peace. My mom was like, Johnny, I'm here with our daughters. You know, I, I want you to know I'm here supporting them during this. And, um, yeah, we let him go. Um, Even before my dad got in the accident, there was never any question how much I loved him or his love for me. You know, never. <laughs> I wish yeah. things, I wish he could have been healthier. It, it makes me sad that his life choices maybe gave him some regret that led to his drinking or, or whatnot or not getting the help he needed for his anxiety. He had generalized anxiety. I think that's why I drink a lot. Um, and, you know, it's just sad. Just sad. Yeah. yeah. I know. It is. It is sad. It's, it reminds me of a previous episode that I did with Cameron. But, you know, she brings up a good point, just like her dad was, uh, it was his ego that killed him. You know, it was, he, you know, alcoholism didn't kill him. It was his ego and his inner demons. And it's like, yes. and you hear, you know, and the way you say it with your dad, just, he had so much anxiety and so much built up and he didn't want to die because he was just so filled with regret. Yeah. And, and it's just. You know, you just want to like shake it into people sometimes. It's just like, this is life. This is life right now. <laughs> like, this is what we're doing here. 
And yeah. like tomorrow or an hour from now, who the hell knows what's going to happen. And you can't, dad, we can't keep you on these machines and all this shit that's going to keep you alive, hooked up to a machine just, just to die you're of too, bone cancer. <laughs> you're, you're too afraid yeah. to face the reality of some of your situation, of some of your, you know, decisions. Right. It's just, but it's, but what a heavy thing to take on in your mind. Like, I'm sure that kind of some, maybe some dark days ensued, like, but just a lot of the conversations that you could have had with him, had he been a healthier guy, had he been, you know, had mental disorder, not, you know, tainted your relationships, like stuff like that. Like what did the days following or the, you know, the couple, last couple of years look like for you? Cause I'm sure that's like a lot of self-discovery built into that. I will tell you, um, I am the alpha in the family. I am the one who went to the military academy. I've served in three war zones. Like I, I take charge. People come to me in a crisis. Um, I died part of that day. And so, um, I'm kind of like, okay, once the decision's made, we do this. We had that happen. We were with his body for maybe five minutes, 10. And I was like, I have to get the fuck out of here. So we all left. Like that was it. Like that was done. And so we went home to my aunt's house. I had a glass of wine. I remember we took an Uber and my mom, cause my um, aunt had already, you know, left. Cause we were there just a little longer. And I told the Uber drivers, like my dad just died. Like I just took my dad off life support. He was so lovely. Um, he was just, Oh my God. Like just so lovely. And my mom was with me. And so we get to my aunt's house. And when I get there, there's a glass of wine for me. There's a, um, a medication for anxiety um, that my aunt had that, you know, everybody's aunt has one. And, and I took it. <laughs> And I took some other things and I slept for four fucking days. So um, I just did not engage in the world. And and my sister, who is amazing, um, just stepped up and started taking care of everything because she had that boundary. Like, you know, she'd said goodbye to my dad a long time ago. And she was significantly stronger than me at that moment, despite the fact that our whole lives, I'm, I'm the one, I'm the strong one. I, I think I was off work for maybe three weeks. And then I started going back to work and that's what my life was. I would, um, I stopped grad school. Um, I, I got a leave of absence for that semester. There was no way I was going to be able to concentrate for school. Um, I would go to work, I would shower and otherwise it was in bed or I was drinking. Um, and I was drinking, watching my dad's favorite movies, Jaws, you know, some of my favorite movies. Um, God bless my boyfriend. Like he, you know, I just start drinking at one, watching my movie, doing a puzzle. And he just allowed it for a, a period of time. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. That's what my days look like afterwards. Glorified self-destruction. You're like, <laughs> it's an excuse, sir. You had an excuse, you know, my dad just died. I can just yeah, grow up my life for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dark. It's almost like you get out of the, now you can kind of look back and you're saying it with a smile, kind of laughing at yourself. You're like, Jesus Christ. But when you're in it, that shit sucks. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. And you said it too, like a piece of you just died too. that, like, you know, that alpha female that you are and like the control, you know, you have control of everything. You're just like, screw this. Like, 
I'm sure all those days when you were like, oh, I wish dad would have died. Well, then he did die. And you're like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> what what am I dealing punished. with now? <laughs> I'm being punished. Yeah. Oh, and um, yeah, it was pretty God. dark. I mean, there were periods of time where I'm, I am not, I was never suicidal and never wanted to kill myself. Like, but I remember a few times after it happened within those days, I wish I was dead. Like, I just wish I was dead. Don't want to be here, you know, but never suicidal or, or whatnot. But there's a difference from not wanting to be there and engaged with the world and wanting to actively take your life. But it was, yeah, it was dark. Yeah. I noticed on your Facebook. So, I mean, it was kind of a heavy dad week for you. It was his birthday. And then like four days later, it was father's day. So, and you're about two years out of the, out of the flame here. Your dad died in 2019, right? Still a very difficult time. I, I, I don't mean like you've overcome much because this time is still just so hard, I think, but, um, you know, heavy dad week. And I see you post on Facebook that you put <laughs> like 40 bucks into a into a Kino machine and it pays you out $1,100. What the hell? Also, so funny that you're like talking to a Kino machine and you're like, come oh, on, yeah. dad, give me a sign. <laughs> so um, a whole nother topic for discussion, but I would say, and I, I won't get into a deep, my, my, my viewpoint on like death and spirituality changed after that. And, and there's some reasons for that. I won't go there, but I, the, the old man's with me all the time. Our, our dead relatives, I firmly believe from whenever are with us all the time, they're just there and they want you to talk to them. They want you to be like, talk out loud. Like they can feel the vibrations more getting a little weird, whatever. But so, um, my dad loved to gamble. I love to gamble. Um, and we're at, uh, yeah, his birthday was on the 18th and then it's father's day, um, which was always a pain in the ass as a kid growing up. I had to get two cards, a birthday one, and then a father's day, like within days of each other. But, um, so yeah, I'm at a machine, you know, my family knows I like to gamble a little too much. So my mom was a little concerned. I was like, Hey, um, I was going to stay away from gambling when I came back to Rhode Island. Cause I love to gamble, but I'm like, I'm here with my family. I'm taking this 40 I had a vodka lemonade. They're all talking. My grandfather's there. My uncles are there. My aunts are there. Um, there's about seven of us, I want to say. And um, I go into the Edgar bar, into this little <laughs> machine and I start putting it in and it wasn't playing at first. And then I, I started hitting some numbers and I am literally talking to this machine saying, come on, dad, let me pay for lunch in your name. And keep in mind, my mom's family they don't hate my dad but they have some bad feelings i mean my dad was pretty abusive to my mom at periods of time they're not like there's no love lost there and i was like let's stick into him come on dad let's pay for lunch let's 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 make it in your name and da, da, da. man that freaking machine started hitting 600 here whatnot there and i, I cashed out for 1150 and gave our waitress like a, a, a big tip paid for lunch made my whole family cheers to his name <laughs> I we got every it. dessert on the menu. <laughs> my uncle it. was this like, is... I wish, I wish I would have ordered my own steak. I mean, <laughs> he got like a sandwich. It's awesome. Was I funny. love it. Like to some point you're just like, I'm embracing my dad's faults, like some of the faults, you know, yeah. whatever. He loved to gamble. He screwed up some of my life because of these things that he liked to do, but whatever. Like, I loved it. I love him. And now we have free lunch. So, and I'm talking to a a Kino machine and I've done that before too. And when it doesn't hit, I'm like, screw you, dad, you aren't listening. There's no, there's no afterlife. Screw you. Take my money. No, (laughs) 
But yeah, I love that post. It's just so funny because I've done that same thing where I'm like, uh, if you're here right now, just the little things, you know, you're, you're talking Give to yourself <laughs> and you're talking to yourself. And before you know it, you're just, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's all making sense. Like you've got the Roaring Kitty shirt on. I love the stock market and all that shit myself. It's all making sense. This is where this is where my gambling addiction goes into a healthier venue. So I'm no longer at Kino machines. Like like when I came back in 2009 to Montana to go to nursing school, I'd been in Afghanistan the year before. I had a gambling addiction. I was bored. I was so freaking bored. I was like, I'm bored. I I just spent this amazing year in a war zone where people were like, you know, IEDs, mortars, shit like that. And like, I come home to Montana, I'm bored of shit. So I go to the Kino. So a gambling addiction happens, right? Well, that's not healthy. So you know. I leave to go be a travel nurse and, and, and find a healthier avenue, um, investing in GameStop, <laughs> GameStop and AMC Amazing. And <laughs> taking down the institution. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And it's also a part of your story too. I mean, your life was full of excitement and then okay. go to Afghanistan, add more excitement. How about, and I mean, when you've got alcoholism in your family, shit's exciting all the time. And if, yeah. If it's not, then it's, it's boring. I mean, you choose friends that are bo- like you stay away from friends that are boring because yes. it's not anything familiar to you. You know, it's like it's so funny. I I uh, spent Christmas at my in-laws house. They do not have a drinking problem. Nothing of the sorts, you know, very healthy. <laughs> I like go to take a nap. I'm tired. I come back. They're playing. They're putting puzzles together you know in my mind i'm like two hours two hours in my family that would have been two bottles of wine you know like just don't even we won't even go there what two hours on christmas would have been with my family right it's just just, well we become we become addicted to the drama and the excitement and you know one family drinking a couple bottles of wine or like ending up like in fistfights, you know, there's different levels of functionality, you know, or, or not drinking at all and being boring. I, again, my, I, I, I think my family's great on my mom's side, but they were boring compared to the other side. And I guess as we get health older and try to be healthier, we kind of try to like find avenues to be less self-destructive. You know, I mean, I fight with the drinking all the time. Wanting to drink is just easier, but I have this in my blood. Like my father's life, he, he, he lost everything, everyone and everything that mattered to him. He, he lost before he died. And, you know, so you, you have to watch that because it is a genetic disease. You know, we have, you know, you can argue environment or, or genetics, but we, you know, there's parts of us that are bred into us that make us more susceptible or whatnot. So we have to watch it. Um, you know, we tried to, I always chose men who were exciting and funny like him and that led me nowhere. And, you know, now I'm in a healthier quote unquote, less exciting. I don't want to say the boring word. Cause that would, my boyfriend would kill me, but just like less exciting, but it's healthy, you know? And yeah. so we try to take a different door than, than what we could have done to be more exciting and, and make healthier choices. So now my gambling is GameStop. Yep. <laughs> to the moon. To the moon. Diamond hands. Diamond hands. <laughs> Fuck you, paper hands. <laughs> Roaring oh, Kitty 2024. <laughs> I just think this was a really good, you know, you could go down so many different routes, but I mean, when people didn't grow up in an alcoholic home or dysfunctional family, 
they don't hear it and they they're they don't know it they don't even recognize it so but there's a lot of shit that goes on in your home that people are so unaware of if if your family isn't taken by mental illness or alcohol problems or addiction problems people don't understand it and so just to hear you kind of come back around and i mean you just put it on the you know you just put it out there and you're like yeah, he was screwed up on this level, but he was amazingly talented and we all loved him very much. You know, like, I think it's really cool to put it out there like that. And not only, you know, that side of it all, but who people become when they um, grow up in that environment are some of the coolest people that I know. You know, they really are like, they're just authentic. They're fun. Never a dull moment. And like, yeah, there's things... (laughs) Yeah. There's things you have to like work on and yes, it could get hairy and bad, you know, if you don't work on those underlying anxieties that, um, come with living that sort of life. But I freaking love people who have similar stories. Like that's just who I get along with more, you know? So so I just, yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing it. And I want to make sure that people really see who your dad was and stuff because he deserves that you deserve it. And, and it just helps you better understand this side of you. So thank you for doing thank it. Thank you for the opportunity. Every time I yeah. talk about him, um, he's around and it's just, it helps my, it helps my soul heal, yeah. I guess, you know, so thank mm-hmm. you. Take okay. care, Sarah. So Bye. nice to hang out with you. Bye. Yes. Bye. I Speak Dead People is hosted and produced by Sarah Bolstead, music by Clark Mormon, and art by Jacob Allen Dix. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. She's at it.